0: Oh, come on, that's ter- That's woeful. Any people are filled with the Holy Spirit? Yeah. That's a bit better, There's a bit, bit more life in you. Hey, I really wanted to thank everybody involved in Alpha. Uh, Alpha happens on Wednesday nights here at the moment, and uh, we have a number of people who have never had a chance to explore Christianity at a, at a safe environment, actually asking their questions. But that takes a really strong, good team to make sure that that's happening well. So who's who's helped involved in setting up, leading a small group on alpha, cooking? Put your hand up. In so fact, why don't you stand up? Everyone stand up who's helped in any way getting alpha going. Come on, don't be shy. Why don't we give them a big hand? We really sincerely appreciate it. You know, when people talk about church, the church does this or the church does that. We're the church. The church, it's you and me. We're it. Church isn't a building. Um, And so it takes a team to make sure that we're doing it, and I really appreciate it. They've got a retreat coming up for Alpha, and it's very, very important for people who don't understand um, Christianity to come to that retreat, because we talk about who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit does in us, and then we finish that with how can we be filled with the Holy Spirit. And many people on Alpha, for the very first time, encounter God on that retreat, And there is a cost because they go away to a special venue, um, they provide meals. So I think it's about $80 for the day. We don't want anyone to miss out because of finances. So if you're able to um, sponsor somebody, either partway or the whole amount, you can always just put it in an envelope and give it to either me or Charles. You can always give online through our website and just designate it for the Alpha Retreat. Um, We had a few people do it last week and we really appreciate it, but you can still give towards that as well. Uh, one final thing before we get into the Word of God. Closer starts this Tuesday evening at seven thirty, and you're still welcome to actually come along. All I'm asking you to do is just to register, so I can. I've got to set up the room, print out some handouts. What we're doing is this: I'm presenting scientific research on what it takes to have a long-lasting marriage relationship. So it's not going to be like a Bible study. You can invite people who are not part of our church, so your neighbours or your friends to come along. It's going to be very short and sharp. We're just going to do one hour, so sort of 7.30 to 8.30, and present some of that research, have a bit of a Q&A around the research, because really what I want to happen is for those of you who are either currently married or are considering getting married in the future, to actually have a chat to your partner about what you just heard. So I'd love for you to go out for coffee afterwards. Um, on the way home so it's not going to be a late night we'll finish around 8 30 quarter to 9 you've probably got enough time to actually sit down and have a chat together so on purpose I'm not giving you free tea and coffee on Tuesday night because by around about you know 9 4 9, uh, 9 8 45 I want you out of the building talking together about what you just heard so anyone can come you don't have to be married to come along but I just need uh, to know who's coming so I can print all the handouts and all that stuff that'd be a great thing to do well guess what Seven weeks before Christmas. The countdown is on. We should have had the final countdown music, shouldn't I? Seven weeks before Christmas. Anyone ready for Christmas yet? Who has not thought about it at all? Like shopping, gifts, wrapping, cards. You know, the funny thing about Christmas is all the organising it takes to get there. It takes a lot of organising, right? Now, I'll tell you a secret about uh, Sue and myself. We pre-planned Christmas... From February. So we're one of those really weird couples that have been buying presents throughout the whole year and all we have to do now is wrap them. That's all we have to do. Mind you, that still takes about two weeks with our extended family. Um and of course, you know, we love getting gifts. Actually, can you put the first slide up for me? I appreciate that. We love getting gifts. Now who's ever got a really bad gift at Christmas? Put your hand up. I'm gonna tell you a true story. I'm not gonna mention any names. Otherwise, I might be stoned, persecuted, executed. But in in our extended family, this happened, I think it was about 1988, 1989. It's when the first salad dryers came out. You know those salad dryers? You know, you see, you put the washed salad in the little plastic sort of sieve, and then that sat in another container, and you, you would spin it, and it would sort of throw the water off to the side. We had an extended family member give his wife one of those for Christmas. Now, when I I witnessed that firsthand, when I saw that, I said to Sue, from this year on, we have a rule in our house. No kitchen appliances or kitchenware can be exchanged for birthdays or Christmas. We're not doing that. Someone recently gave me a wallet. Actually, I have it here. I've got a wallet. Someone in my family gave me a wallet. But you know what? I can't get my cards out. You ever had a gift you have to use because someone in the family gave it to you? Charles, come and try. see if you can get that flyby's card out. Can you pull it out? No, try and pull it out. Like, really pull it out. You... It's a security feature of the wallet. but I, there's, there's no money in it, mate. I took the money out beforehand. We all love gifts, but often we get a bad gift. Sometimes we get a great gift that we really love. But here's the thing about gifts. It's actually not the object. So whether it's the wallet, the seller dryer, whatever you can think of as a good or bad gift that you've received... What the gift is, it's only a material object. And the most important part of the gift is actually the person who gave it to you. Because really what the gift does, whether it's large, expensive, um, whether it's, you know, a salad dryer, whether it's a wallet, you can't get your credit card out, so I save a lot of money doing that. Whatever it is, it's actually the relationship I have with that person. It's a representation of the depth of the relationship I have with them. And so, you know... Let's be honest, how many people have re-gifted something? Come on, put your hand up. Oh, the rest of you are lying for sure. <laughs> Everybody re-gifts these days. But it doesn't, just, it doesn't sort of impact the relationship you have because really the best gift that you've got in your life is them. It's nothing that they give you, whether it's cash that they give you, whether you're know, thinking of all the different presents you, maybe you got this year for your birthday or last Christmas. It is about the actual person. That's the real gift. It's not the present. It's their presence. It's their attention. It's the relationship. It's the love. It's them understanding you, you understanding them. It's doing the journey of life with your family, your neighbours, your work colleagues. The relationship is actually the most precious gift. Nothing that they could give you in a material sense is actually worth hanging on to long term because everything's not going to last. So treasuring when someone gives you a gift... It's really treasuring the relationship. Now, that's really what God did when he gave us Jesus. He gave us the best gift he could give us. And the gift that God gave us was a person, a relationship with his son, Jesus. Now, some of you will know this scripture. Um, Go to the next slide, thank you. It's in In an Old Testament book, it's actually written around 700 BC. So 700 years before Christ. And what happened was, Around 200 years before this verse was written, Solomon, the king of the Hebrews, had passed away. And after Solomon, there was a succession of kings that were very poor at ruling the kingdom. They were very self-centered, some of them were outright evil or wicked. They replaced worshipping the one true God with other gods. There was a whole lot of stuff going on. There was actually some bad feeling in Israel about Solomon's reign because even though Solomon led them to the most opulent, wealthy time in history, it came at a high cost. A lot of people, a lot of the sort of peasants were actually forced into forced labour to pay for his wealth. And so during this time of Solomon's death and then these following these bad kings that came along, Israel actually had a revolt. Ten of the tribes, of which there were 12, said we don't want to be ruled by a king anymore we've had enough and so what they did they separated themselves into what historically they call the northern kingdom so in this point around 700 and when this scripture is written Israel is split into two groups 10 tribes in the north who don't want a king they've had enough of bad wicked opulent kings and the other two tribes Judah are still in the south and so what had happened is the Assyrians had taken the opportunity and partly because of God's judgment against um, the rebellion of the Israelites at the same time, the Assyrians had come in and invaded the northern tribes and taken them captive. And the northern tribes had become what, what's t- technically called a vassal state. So they're dominated by an external power. Most of their property was destroyed during the battles. Many of their people were captured that were left um, and taken into slavery into Assyria, into foreign land, forced to worship foreign gods into a different culture. And so we have this trauma and terrorizing happening to these people that thought well, they were God's chosen people. Now, Isaiah, who's penned or spoken these words, is a prophet. And he has a series of prophecies about what God, why God was allowing the Syrians to rule them and at this point in Isaiah, he's prophesying that their domination by the Assyrians will not go on forever, and that actually God has heard their cries and he will deliver them. And so we come to this very well-known verse in Christian circles. So let's, let's read it together. Um, I've got it on the screen, but if you've got it on your, in your Bibles, you might have a slightly different version, you're welcome to turn there as well. So we have this phrase, and this is Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. So you get the whole thing about them being enslaved. They're not in control of their own um, government. And so Uzziah's prophesying that another king's going to come, the government, he will rule, not the Assyrians. But then he says, and these are interesting phrases, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting father and the prince of peace. Now theologians have talked about this one little verse since it was written because when you look at those descriptions of the king that's going to come and deliver the northern kingdom from the Assyrians, clearly it's not describing a human king. What human king could be a mighty God? What human king could be an everlasting father? So It actually has two levels of meanings. Isaiah was still prophesying to the northern kingdom who are being brutalised by the Assyrians about their current situation in 1732 BC. Isaiah speaking to them and in fact theologians believe that Hezekiah, who's one of the next kings, he's probably the next good king, is actually who Isaiah is prophesying about to the Israelites at that point in history. But given the description... Theologians say there's a second layer of meaning here that Isaiah would have been totally unaware of when he spoke those words and wrote them down. And it's talking about King Jesus. It's a description of the Messiah that will deliver all people at a point in history. And that's Jesus Christ. Because when you look at these phrases, it's not a human person. Now, most of you will know in the ancient world, and in fact, even in probably still some cultures today, a ruler is considered to be a deity or like a god. And in fact, they would give themselves, they call them throne names. And what Isaiah has done here, he's actually given both Hezekiah and Jesus these throne, throne names. And this is how it works. Go to the next slide. Let me explain it to you. So you can see on the, 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 right, the left-hand side for you there, This is the description which is a permanent thing. So, when you think about Jesus, he's counsellor. When you think about Jesus, he's God. When you think about Jesus, he's Father, not in the sense, it's a play on words with Father, it's in the sense that he's continuous or the beginning of. He's the beginning of the new kingdom of God. And then he is a prince or that word can also be interpreted, the ruler. So, you have these permanent descriptions in throne names, and then you have what's called um, a description that shows us the type of character that the person has about that. So, we have the other words on the other side. So, the fact that the God or Jesus as counsellor, his counselling is wonderful. Or, God is mighty. That's the sort of God that Jesus is. Father, he's everlasting. The beginning. But also, he's everlasting. He's the prince or ruler of something, peace. Now, you know, in popular culture, they have this. You watch um, Games of Thrones, Khaleesi. Do you know Khaleesi in Games of Thrones means queen of everything? So they, We play on this idea all the time in our, you know, in literature, on movies, on television. Throne names, a permanent description. And then something that characterizes what it is about that permanent description. So, it's not a name in the sense that we use names. So, my name is Greg. That doesn't describe anything about me. What a throne name did is actually describe the character of the person. It wasn't a title to distinguish me from other people like my first name, Greg. It was actually a description that told everybody who I was as in my character. So, counsellor, God, father and he's the prince. That's the level of layer that we're talking about here. Now the word, I'm going to talk about Prince of Peace. And really what I want to do today is describe to you what peace is. Because I think sometimes in our culture we're not really sure what peace, how do we get it, how do we maintain it. And also I want to give you an opportunity, if you feel like you don't have peace, I want to give you an opportunity to follow the teachings of Jesus because he is the Prince of Peace. He's the ruler of peace. He's the giver of peace. He's the one that maintains your peace. So I've got a theory, we can't generate peace ourselves. Now, again, if we take the first level of meaning, so the Israelites hearing Isaiah prophesy in 1732 BC, they're thinking of the absence of war and the, the, the pushing out of these foreigners who are taking control of them. But for us today in this speaking also about the Messiah who was still to come, he comes into our life and he rules us with peace. He does not rule us with criticism, rebuke, rejection. He's not a tyrant as a king. He's a peaceful prince. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to consider these things. And I actually, I encourage you to take some notes as we go along today. I'm going to cover a little bit of ground. But that's that's my aim today is to cover some of that. Now the word prince there means ruler and the word peace is the Hebrew word shalom. Actually I had brunch with um, a friend of mine yesterday and he didn't know I was speaking today and as he left he said to me shalom, uh, and he's not Jewish by the way, but it was just funny that he said the word to me because I knew I was going to be talking about shalom. Shalom is not just the absence of conflict. So when a Jewish person uses the word shalom as a greeting, they'll often give it as a greeting on meeting someone that they know or when they leave the presence of someone they know. So you can use it either way, when you arrive or when you leave. But it has a very broad meaning. It's not just about peace be with you, or may your life be filled with peace. It's actually also about your well-being, your total wholeness. So it can be interpreted various ways into English. Wholeness, prosperity, well-being, peace. So it's a bit broader than the way we use peace in English because often when we use peace, we're thinking is, I'm not fighting with my spouse today. The house is a bit more peaceful. But that's actually not what it means. It's not the absence of conflict because here's one of the strange things that I've discovered about the Prince of Peace, having Jesus in my life. I can be in conflict with somebody because sometimes you can't control the behaviour of somebody else, but you can still have peace in the midst of that conflict. So it can't be just the absence of trouble. Peace must be much deeper than that. Now, I think God is the only one that gives peace. We can't manufacture it. We can't clear our minds and hopefully be more at peace with ourselves. Peace is a gift from God and it comes through Jesus Christ. That's how we get peace. Calmness, just being calm or at ease is not necessarily peace either. I've met people who are very calm but are not at peace with themselves. So peace is really a spiritual attribute that only comes by having Jesus at the centre of our lives and that's by making a decision to follow him every single day of your life. So follow his teachings, his instructions and to have him living in you, that's how you get peace. You'll be surprised at how often the Bible mentions this concept. So if you're writing notes, let me give you just a couple of verses. It says in Romans 15 verse 13, listen to this, this won't come up on the screen. My God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace. Only God fills us with peace. Romans 16 verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. The God of who? Shalom, that's right. The God of well-being, prosperity. The God who grants, gives and maintains our sense of peace. Philippians verse four, uh, chapter 4 verse 9, it says, what you've learned and received and heard from us, So this is Paul talking to a church in Philippi, he says, practice these things that you've seen and heard us do, and then he says, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, to me, that's a key. If we don't practice the things that we learn, that we should, the way we should live as Christ's disciples and followers, you can lose your sense of peace. It's not that you lose Jesus, but if you're not walking in the peace that God has gifted with us, then you don't experience the peace that God wants you to have. I'm going to unpack that idea a little bit um, in a few minutes, a bit more. Uh, First Thessalonians, so again, Paul's talking to a church in, a, in a, um, a Roman city called Thessalonica, and he says in chapter 5, verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Sanctify means make you more like Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I've found personally the process that God has taken me on to sanctify me, to make me more, to conform to the image of his Son is not always that peaceful, sometimes it's traumatic, is that right? God often leads us into places we don't want to be, Things that we, he asks us to do things we don't want to do, So it's, so again, peace is not about our circumstances, peace is not about happiness, because that's circumstantial, can come and go, peace is not about the absence of trouble, or an argument, There's something that is spiritual about peace that I cannot manufacture. But once Jesus comes into my life and I choose to obey the teachings of Christ in how I live, so how I treat my family, how I act in the workplace, how I interact with strangers, hospitality, mercy, grace, forgiveness. If I choose to do those things, I can truly experience the peace that's already within me through Christ. But if I don't forgive, or I don't show mercy, if I'm argumentative, or if I want to be right, then it's no wonder I don't live in the peace that Jesus has actually already given to me. It's not that it goes away, it's just that I'm not experiencing it because I'm choosing not to live according to the way God's designed us to live and interact with each other. So I think you can have the peace by having Jesus, but for those of us who are believers, You might be thinking, well, I don't feel like I've got a lot of peace. I think part of it is because we choose to act in a way that's inconsistent with being a disciple of Jesus. We don't do what we know we should do. And many of us have been Christians for many years. We will know that we're not doing the things that we've already learned we should do if we follow Christ. Uh, A friend of mine often says, we're educated as Christians far beyond our level of obedience. So we don't lose the peace, we've got it, but it doesn't feel like it because I've, I've, I haven't forgiven that person who spoke to me that way. I think that's what happens. The so peace is not calmness, it's not happiness. Um, you can be I mean, I've known people who have suffered great physical ailments, pain and difficulties, but because they're in a constant relationship with Jesus, they're at peace. Their trouble's still there, their pain's still there, Their strife is still there, but they have a peace. As we know the Bible says, passes all understanding. It it bypasses this. So you're not capable of manufacturing peace. It's not possible. Now you can, when we use the word, well, I'm at peace with somebody, what we're really saying is there's no trouble between us anymore. But that doesn't mean internally I feel like I have peace. And so it's a deeper thing here that we're talking about. So I'm going to tell you a couple of things. First, I want to explain to you the three things I think we get when we know Christ around peace. Here's number one. It'll come up on the screen, the next slide. Thank you. We have peace with God, and that's the most important thing. Peace with God the Father. In fact, it's interesting that um, when uh, Jordan was leading us around the Lord's table and celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus, that he read this same verse out to us because I don't know if you may have sort of missed it, but listen to this, in Romans 5, just the very first verse, it says, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. That's the Father. And in fact, when Jordan kept reading it, the rest of the chapter talks about because before Jesus came, we were enemies with God. We didn't realise it, but our condition, our self centeredness often our sinful actions, the way we mistreat each other, that actually separated us from God and God had to bring some judgment on our behavior, our thinking, our attitudes. And that judgment was taken by Jesus. And so really this this scripture here summarizes the message of Christ in very succinct terms. He says, since we've been justified, so justified simply means it's a legal word in the Bible, that means we are in right standing before a holy God. Now you can't justify yourself if you broke. You know, think about, you know, if you're speeding down the road and a policeman pulls you over, you can't justify yourself. You broke the law. And it's the same spiritually speaking. If we're not living under the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can break God's law, whether you're aware of it or not. And that means you're. In, God has to judge you. That's an enmity between you and God. And it's through Christ. So Christ took on the judgment that you and I deserve. That's why we ate the biscuit and drank the juice to symbolize his death and resurrection, which was the judgment of God on him. The Bible says he became our sin on the cross. And here in Romans, Paul's explaining to these Christians in Rome that since we've been justified, we're now right with God. If we stand before a a holy God in a legal sense, we're right. There's nothing he's going to judge us for. But how do we get there? Now, I want you to note this. We get justified by doing nothing. There is nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. He says it's through faith. So just read that sentence. You just look at it. We are justified through faith. One of the great things about Christianity is no other gods have wounds. Only Jesus as a God carries wounds. Do you know that? Out of all the gods in the world that humans talk about, our God is the only one that carries the wound of his crucifixion. And all we have to do is accept and understand and believe that he was the Son of God, and when he was wounded for us, he took on our judgment. That's faith. It's just a sense of believing what you read and understand. So the way we get right with God is simply through faith. You don't have to do anything but just believe the message of Jesus Christ. That's all you've got to do. You don't have to play penance. You don't have to, you know, do sacrifices, you don't you know we don't have to do any of that stuff. It's just purely a gift from God through faith. And then he says, listen to this. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus gives us peace with God. That's the first thing he does. The second thing he does In the next slide, thank you. It gives us peace with ourselves. And I I think this is probably just as big as the first one. On my journey of following the teachings of Scripture and trying to live out the way God has asked us to live our lives in interacting with each other, the way I see myself, um, how I serve Him, how do I I be a father and a husband, in my years of trying to walk down this very clear path of following the teachings of, of Christ in how to live, I find sometimes it's harder to apply it to myself. I can apply it to other relationships or other people, but sometimes I feel shamed when I do the wrong thing. Sometimes I feel guilty when I do the wrong thing. Sometimes I feel like I'll never conquer that particular attitude or behaviour. Now, I know I'm the only one in the room that feels this way. (laughs) But here's one of the great things that we have, if you have made through faith, the decision to follow Jesus, you can be at peace with yourself. And this scripture here, I mean, just it's so clear. It's not always our experience, but it's nevertheless a truth we have to apply when we don't feel, when we feel guilt, shame, anxiety. So listen to these words: Don't be anxious about anything. And by the way, when I read that, I, I, I've got a weird black sort of sense of humour. Telling someone who's anxious not to be anxious—how effective is that? Yeah, it just doesn't doesn't work for me. I don't know if it works for you. Next time someone in your family is really anxious, just say, "Look, the Bible says don't be anxious about anything," and then duck because they'll, and then turn the other cheek. I, I, it makes me smile because if you're anxious, you're anxious, right? But it, but it, Paul's trying to unpack how to be at peace with yourself because if you have Christ, if you have Jesus, and He's giving you peace between Him and His Father, then we should be at peace with ourselves. And so he's, he's trying to explain how it works. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you what this scripture teaches us that I think often we read over. or we've, You know, some scriptures we're so familiar with, we don't see the point because we've read it time and time again. So it says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer, petition, thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, listen to this. And the peace of God, which transcends everything, all understand. Is there anything that you can think—that's your understanding. It transcends that. We'll now listen to this language. This is the language I want to pick up. We'll guard your heart and your mind. Now, this is what we forget: our mind and our hearts are, de- are, are deceitful. We deceive ourselves every all the time. Uh, one of my favorite sort of life phrases is, "Don't believe everything you think," because your thoughts aren't that crash hot. In fact, often they're quite critical about yourself. They're quite negative about other people. Don't believe everything you think. You're, I mean, we know the Bible says our heart is deceitfully wicked, but our mind is the same. And what, what Paul is trying to say is, is, he starts with the end result, but then he says, well, how we get there is we have to allow the peace of God to guard our minds and our hearts because they're not trustworthy. We deceive ourselves. We're broken people. We make mistakes. We think wrong thoughts. We mistreat other people when we know we shouldn't. So we've got to guard ourselves. And the only thing that can guard your mind and heart is the peace of God. And it doesn't come through your ability to think it through. It doesn't come through your capacity. You don't have the capacity to create your own peace. But the peace of Christ has the capacity to guard your mind and guard your heart. But Here's the thing. Oh that's great, you know I, we, we, we love that, but the next time you get really upset because another believer in our church has mistreated you, you're not going to guard your heart and mind, are you? Those guards are going to slip as quick as they went up, and you're going to be really mad and you're going to stay you know we're all human, but that's what, what I'm saying is we have the peace once you have Jesus, you've got the peace of God. it's rock solid, it never goes away, but the depth to which you experience it. Is the depth to which you follow Christ in every little decision you make, in everything that you do. You don't follow His ways, you're not going to experience the peace. You haven't lost it. Jesus is still with you, but you don't feel it because you haven't guarded your heart and your mind. We can't manufacture our own peace. We can maintain what the gift of peace that Jesus is by following Him obediently and faithfully even when we don't feel like it, when we feel like we're a doormat, when we feel like people are mistreating us. And we've all, we've, there wouldn't be one person in this room this morning that hasn't been through that, but that's the way of the cross. That's how you maintain the peace of the gift of the peace that God has given us. So here's the final thing. The next slide, thank you. We have to have peace with others. Now, this is an interesting one. Did a lot of reading around peace with others in this particular verse because you know what the first two peace with god is absolutely guaranteed never moves never increases or decreases you have peace with god through faith you are justified there's nothing there's no wall between you and god anymore when you take christ that's how that works you can have peace with yourself if in every circumstance it says by prayer petition and thanksgiving Now, that's just talking to God. There are three ways you can talk to God. Petition is asking him for his help. Um, Thanksgiving is thanking him for what he's done and for who he is. I mean, we're just conversation. I think sometimes we make prayer too too much of a spiritual thing. It's like you talk to your best friends, you just talk to God. When you do that, the peace of God will guard your heart and mind because he'll speak back to you. But this one, peace with others we don't have as much control over this one because other people, well, they can mistreat us. You can't, you can't predict another person's behaviour. And so it's interesting the way this is written for us in Scripture. Um, it, it includes that idea. He uses the phrase, as much as it can be with you, live at peace with other people. In other words, there are a lot of people out there that don't have peace, don't live in peace, don't practice the peace that we have, he gets that. But what you do in your treatment and relationship with him, that's entirely in your decision-making and in your power. So as much as it can be with you, with me individually, as you individually, live at peace with other people. Now here's why we should practice the key teachings of scriptures you know things i mentioned just briefly before things like mercy forgiveness compassion empathy why we should practice those things when someone is not giving it back to us is because god is a god of peace and so we should be granting peace to other people even when they don't deserve it and here's why you didn't deserve the peace of god that you have i didn't deserve the peace of god that i've got Oh, I'm not doing that for them. Greg, you don't understand what they've been doing the last couple of years against me. Well, no, I probably don't, but that's happened to me as well. And so as much as it can be with you, live at peace with other people because in actual fact, when you do that, you are demonstrating the power of the cross and the gospel of Jesus by showing people love, mercy, compassion. Deserved or undeserved is not the point. The truth is none of us deserve it. That's why we needed a saviour. And so we have to reflect the God that lives in us by the way we interact and treat other people because that's what God is looking for us to do. He is a God of peace. He's not a God of chaos. He's not a God of disorder. He's not a God of revenge. Just as, well, we're not God because we'd probably be those things, right? So we have to live at peace with other people. So let me conclude by saying just a couple of things here. I hope from today you can distinguish between false peace, happiness, calmness, material things, material gifts, a better job, more money. All that stuff's not going to bring you peace. There are a lot of very wealthy people that have no peace. There are a lot of people who live in abject poverty that I personally know in other parts of the world. They have more peace as a human being than I've ever experienced. It's got nothing to do with what you have or don't have. It's not circumstantial. That's false. That's, that's our, the way the world tries to describe peace. But when we talk about peace, we're talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ who sets us right with God, his Father, that brings peace to our hearts by gu- guiding our thinking and feelings, our hearts and mind. And as much as we can, we can be at peace with just about everybody we interact with. We can't dictate what they choose to do, but we have a choice. And here's the great thing. God not only gives us the peace, but He empowers us to live that peace out in those relationships. And then we call that the Holy Spirit. That's the presence of God. We don't have the ability to live this way without God. You can't do it. But with God, you can actually sacrifice your thoughts, your feelings, the way you're being mistreated in any relationship, and serve and love and forgive that other person. That's how you maintain peace as a Christian. Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to bring this to a close right now. One of the things that um, is a bit of a passion of mine is I don't want you just to hear any words or read any scriptures. So whether it's in church or privately, if you have a, a time with you and the Lord at some stage during the week, You've got to take what you hear and put it into practice. I mean, just hearing a truth does not save anybody. It's acting on the truth. And even practice it when you don't feel like you can or you feel like it's going to work or you tried it last time and the other person still mistreated you. God doesn't expect you to make those judgment calls. He calls us to trust Him. We have a relationship with our God. So what I want you to do, just close your eyes for a moment. I want you to think of those three things I mentioned. Through Christ, we have peace with the Father. Through Christ, we have peace with ourselves. And through Christ, we can have peace with other people around us. I just want you to pick one of those things that you feel the Lord has spoken to you about. And often that feels like a conviction or a a prompting. Sometimes it can feel like your heart's sort of really beating and you're not really sure why that is because we do respond physically to the, to the way the Spirit of God speaks to us sometimes. Sometimes God's given you a picture or a, an image of someone that you know and He's asking you to put things right. So I'm going to ask you to respond if you feel that God has spoken to you personally. And by this response, we're simply just, uh, I'm asking you, I'm inviting you to put into practice something that you've heard today. I want you to have peace. I want you to understand what the peace of God really is. If you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus, and you'd like to do that today, I want you to put your hand up. Everyone keep your eyes closed. Is anybody here? You just feel the sense of what if the words that you've heard are for you. And you want to know more about what it is to be a follower of Christ, to put his teachings into your life every day. Just put your hand up in the air. I'm not going to call you forward. Not great. Thank you very much. Anybody else? I'm going to lead us all in a prayer. And for those of you who raised your hand, I just want you to join us all but I'm asking all of us just to pray this prayer together just, just uh get you to repeat what I say Father God we thank you for the, your son Jesus Christ who brings peace into my life and through faith I thank you that I've been made right with you Lord grant me the peace that I've heard about today Give me the strength and the wisdom to live out that peace in my relationships with other people. Lord, I thank you for your son, Jesus. Amen. Now, if you raised your hands, just in our Connect Lounge, which is just on your right-hand side as you walk out today, we're going to have Pastor Charles there, and he'd love to chat to you about what it means to be a Christian and how do we follow Christ. Um, But also I want to do one other thing. For those of us who are believers and the Lord's spoken to you about something today, again, I'm not going to call you out the front. Just put your hand up. Just put your hand up. If the Lord's spoken to you about something like a relationship, a situation, maybe a thought pattern that you have or something that's happened in your past, what I want to ask is just keep your hands up high. I just want to ask the people around, can you just lay hands on them? We're going to pray for them as well. We just want to encourage and strengthen. You know, the Bible says we should carry each other's burdens. None of us are perfect, and we all need other people from time to time. I'm just going to lead us in a prayer, but just, just lay hands on them and begin to pray. Father, we commit ourselves to you. Our ways are not your ways. And Lord, sometimes we fail. Sometimes we're just downright rebellious and don't want to do what we know we should do. Sometimes we don't have the energy to actually follow through on what we know we should do to be obedient to your teachings so lord i pray for grace i pray for your spirit to pour out mercy into the lives of those that have raised their hands i pray father for strength and courage to put everything right that you've spoken to them about today may we not just talk about peace but may we live in it continually and i pray that prayer for all of us in this room that our Christianity would not just be words or an ideal, but a way of living that brings life into our families, that brings life into our workplace, that brings life into our neighbors' lives. Lord, I pray we would really be that light on a hill by how we live, how we treat people, how we speak to people. And may you empower us by the grace of your Holy Spirit to be that light. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. We're going to finish with a song this morning, do something different. So why don't you start putting your hands together and we're going to sing a really good song. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to come to the cafe afterwards as we finish now. Let me give Greg a quick hand.
1: the darkest night, let your love be a shining light, break the chains that were holding me, you sent your son down to set me